Chapter Eight of Phillips Brooks by Mark Antony de Wolf Howe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Had the private and parochial affairs of Phillips Brooks been allowed to run their course till the end of his life, that end might have come less quickly. He would, moreover, have been spared the publicity into which his motives and everything that concerned his inmost life were dragged by the conspicuous events of the few closing years. When I think how much of other people's thoughts I have dared to occupy for the last three months, he wrote to a friend in the summer of 1891, I am truly ashamed of myself, but it has not been my fault, and now it is over and I shall go into the upper house and be forgotten. As early as 1886 he might have gone into the House of Bishops, for then he was elected Assistant Bishop of Pennsylvania. From the fact that he declined the office, it was felt that he preferred never to become a bishop. Indeed, with his marvelous power as a preacher, a power to which the businessmen of New York paid their tribute when they thronged from Wall Street to the noonday services at Trinity in the Lent of 1890, he might well have been content to end his clerical life as he began it. This, however, was simply not permitted to him. When the Diocesan Convention of Massachusetts met in April of 1891 to elect a successor to Bishop Paddock, the delegates found themselves in an unusual position. One of the candidates had already received the suffrages of the unsectarian public. The newspapers and general opinion had said that, if the Diocese of Massachusetts should fail to make Phillips Brooks its bishop, it would fall irreparably short of a great opportunity. There were not wanting those within the Church who thought that the election of a man holding the theological views of Mr. Brooks and exhibiting his sympathy with men still more widely at variance with the stricter sect of churchmen, would be an ecclesiastical calamity. When the vote was cast, the laity were found to be overwhelmingly in his favor, and the clergy so far in agreement with them as to leave no doubt that the diocese had chosen the leader it really wanted. Up to this time the churchmanship of Phillips Brooks had been a matter which concerned only his voluntary hearers and his bishop. So long as there was no interference from these quarters, his preaching could go on unquestioned. But it is the law of the Protestant Episcopal Church that a majority of the bishops and standing committees of every diocese shall give their consent, their placibit, to the consecration of every bishop-elect. He is usually so safe a man that no serious question is raised. It is only in the case of extremists that there is any doubt of confirmation. When Father Grafton was elected Bishop of Fond du Lac, the Standing Committee of Massachusetts sent out a circular declaring that he was not too extreme a man for the episcopate. Phillips Brooks himself, representing absolutely different views from Father Grafton, wrote a letter to the president of the standing committee of kentucky saying if we reject extreme men from the episcopate we shall make the episcopate narrower than it is it would have been too much to expect that all those who differed from phillips brooks would look upon his candidacy with correspondingly open minds 
yet there might easily have been a nearer approach to the manner in which he and Massachusetts dealt with the question of Fond du Lac. The objections of those who were most active in opposing the confirmation of the choice of Massachusetts were undoubtedly sincere. The pamphlet in which the bishop of a western diocese brought together his open letter and many other expressions of opposition speaks for the positive convictions of one who believed with all his heart that the church to which his life was devoted would really be hurt by accepting a bishop who had been baptized as an infant by a unitarian had joined in public services with ministers of different creeds had even invited them to partake of the communion when trinity church was consecrated and was himself an arian of some sort it was even an offence that a unitarian minister had written a sonnet of satisfaction on his election if the western bishop knew that students for the methodist ministry were sent by their instructors to hear the preaching of phillips brooks at least he did not mention it nor could it have been known that mr brooks had written to a lady in some uncertainty about coming to confirmation i am content that our church should be a helpful friend to one who has been living among quite different associations and who does not think it best to come into closer personal connection with her still less could it have been foreseen that within two years a congregational minister in worcester would say from his pulpit entirely and deeply loyal as he was to his own branch of the church it was simply impossible for us to identify him wholly with it because the christ that was so signally manifested in him was our christ and the christ of all believers and therefore this man transcending all sectarian limits was the brother and bishop of us all that any man should become the bishop of all without bringing all into one mode of thought was indeed a ground for fear to the western guardian of the faith he called upon mr brooks to define his position on several theological points and received this reply i have been for thirty-two years a minister of the church and i have used her services joyfully and without complaint i have preached in many places and with the utmost freedom i have written and published many volumes which i have no right to ask anybody to read but which will give to any one who chooses to read them clear understanding of my way of thinking my acts have never been concealed under these circumstances i cannot think it well to make any utterance of faith or pledge of purpose at the present time here was one who loved the church of his boyhood and manhood as loyally as the most intense of his opponents one who believed that it was abundantly spacious for them and for him it could have been no easy thing for such a man to bear in silence the bitterest charges of disloyalty and to hear it proclaimed that the place in which he found himself was not a place where he could honestly remain yet through all the weeks when his name in certain regions was little better than a target for abuse no word of retort or justification passed his lips when he found a savage picture of his face in a newspaper he could even make light of it by writing to bishop clark 
No wonder if tis thus he looks, the church has doubts of Phillips Brooks. With other lines to the effect that at least he meant to do his best. For charges of one sort he was indeed alert. After all, he said, they have let me off pretty easily. As yet I have never been charged with breaking either the sixth or the seventh or the eighth commandment. At another time he told a friend that he cared nothing about what might be said of his opinions and position in the church. But, he continued, if you hear a word against my moral character, I must know it. That must be met. Carefully as he and his friends might listen for accusations such as these, they could hear absolutely nothing. That which did make itself heard, in spite of all endeavors of the extremists in opposition, was the positive confirmation which the bishops and the diocese set upon the choice of Massachusetts. On the 14th of October, 1891, in Trinity Church, Boston, Phillips Brooks was consecrated to the Episcopate by the laying on of hands by nine bishops of the church. If there had ever been any real doubt of his loyalty to the system for which they and the ceremony stood, it would have been dispelled by his standing as the central towering figure of the solemn rites. His face, to those who watched it, as the procession of priests and bishops made its way from the chancel to the doors which opened to the world, expressed something more of inward than of outward consecration. Yet the symbol and the reality were as one, and the full significance of his work as a bishop was to be that every formal act could show itself glowing with a light of the spirit that shone within. There were many ways in which the first Sunday after his consecration might have been spent, but the way he chose was probably the best of all. An old friend in the ministry was in deep sorrow for the loss of his wife. To this friend Bishop Brooks devoted the Sunday, preaching for him and bringing him courage and comfort through the words spoken both in public and in private. As he went about the diocese in the weeks and months that followed, it was not to personal griefs that he was called upon especially to minister. Yet into all his relations with his clergy and their people, he infused a strong personal quality which left behind him everywhere a sense that the effective bishop and the affectionate friend were strangely blended into one. In the capacity of friend, he could say to the choir-boys at Newton, in the last public address of his life, When you meet me, let me know that you know me. As a bishop, on the other hand, he won the reputation of a stickler for the canons. Yet one does not need to look far and long to see him again in the less formal light, this time at the first and only meeting of the House of Bishops he attended leaning over to the seminary classmate who long before had befriended him and whispering henry is it always as dull as this the great seriousness of his office however was always behind any humorous lack of seriousness with which he could take himself for the moment just as in his parish ministry he had loved to preach so in all the labors of his new office he experienced a hearty delight I like this going round from place to place and preaching to all these new people, he once said to Bishop Clark. 
I wish that I could have begun this sort of life ten years earlier." It was not a part of his nature to spare himself any fraction of the work which came to him. Letters were answered with the scrupulousness of old, and demands of every sort upon his time were met without a question. When his secretary attempted to condole with him on having so little time to himself, he declared that he had plenty of it in the railroad cars. The total power of good that might have been wrought by a continuance of his travels over the length and breadth of his native state, bringing into every town and city the influence of his words and presence, can hardly be overestimated. But the labors to which he subjected himself were more than a man, no longer young, and never content to live with anything less than the fullest exercise of his powers, could be expected to bear. His zest of living was expressed one day, when he exclaimed to his successor, I don't want to be old, but I should like to live on this earth five hundred years. The horror of his life, he is said to have told another friend, was that he might lose his voice in old age, and be unable to preach. But then, he said, he would ask his friends, a few at a time, to come to his study, and let him whisper his message to them. The look of age, creeping gradually through the recent years into his face, had begun to remind men that his strength, like theirs, had its bounds. But for him the death by slow degrees would have been a horror indeed, and the spectacle of it a sadness to men. Happily this was not to be. A sharp and sudden illness seized him when he had been but fifteen months a bishop, and on January 23, 1893, he died. It is something to live in the age of photography. But for this art, the extent to which Copley Square outside of Trinity Church was thronged on the day when Bishop Brooks was buried might be forgotten. The pictures remain to tell us that on the 26th of January the great church could hold but a small portion of the multitude which came to render him the last act of reverence. The municipal offices and many places of business were closed. A sense of public grief an accumulated personal bereavement was clearly to be felt throughout the city. Men and women of every sect and of none truly mourned the loss of the man whose greatness had belonged to Boston and to America. If you are looking for Christian unity, one of its chief advocates was told that morning, you will see more of it today than you ever have seen before or are likely soon to see again. One wished that Bishop Brooks himself could have known what his death would mean to the whole city of his birth and love, even more particularly to Harvard College. Eight young men from the university, seven of them undergraduates, served as his pallbearers. As the funeral procession moved from Trinity Church to Mount Auburn, it passed, at the request of the undergraduates, through the college yard by Gore Hall and University out through the gate between Harvard and Massachusetts. The college bell tolled slowly. The undergraduates crowded the steps of the buildings and with uncovered heads stood thickly massed on either side of the driveway until the whole procession had passed them by. It was a farewell 
of which the highest exemplar of manhood in any form physical intellectual or spiritual might have been thought worthy that a great body of collegians the keenest of men to know a man when they see him should stand bareheaded on a winter day and pay this farewell homage to phillips brooks speaks more truly than any words of description could speak for the essential quality of manhood that was in him. End of chapter 8